Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Help for HD Lives, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, Thanks for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This show is made possible because of a grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals, HSG, and the Griffin Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today I have Dr. Ed Wild on with me. Dr. Wild is a professor of neurology at University College London, a consultant neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in London's Queen Square, and associate director of UCL Huntington's Disease Center. He runs clinics in general neurology, neurogenetic movement disorders, and Huntington's disease. He leads a team of researchers aiming to accelerate the development of new therapies to make a real difference for people impacted by Huntington's disease. Dr. Wild believes that, quote, scientists have a duty to make their work accessible and understandable to the people who need it most, unquote. So in 2010, he co-founded HDBuzz, an online source of reliable, impartial, easy to understand information about HD research. HDBuzz is now the world's foremost HD research news source. In recognition of this, he was awarded the 2012 Michael Wright Community Leadership Award by the Huntington Society of Canada and the 2014 Research Award by the Huntington's Disease Society of America, which is where I first met Dr. Wild. He has authored seven book chapters and over 80 peer-reviewed publications. He serves on the medical advisory panel of the Huntington's Disease Association, the Association of British Neurologists Neurogenetics Advisory Panel, and the Translational Neurology Panel of the European Academy of Neurology. He is the Associate Editor of the Journal of Huntington's Disease and advises the Steering Committee to the UK All-Party Parliamentary Group on Huntington's Disease, and he is the co-lead facilitator of the European Huntington's Disease Network Biomarkers Working Group. Dr. Wild, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Lauren. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry that took so long to read out. (laughs) No, it's great. So this is not the first time you've joined me, obviously. You have um, been on the show before. Um, But I have a question that I love to ask everybody who comes on that's a professional. And so let's start off with that. Why HD? Well, so in 2005, I was a kind of uncommitted uh, neurologist. So I knew I wanted to be a neurologist, but I didn't know what I wanted to do any more specifically than that. Like I could have ended up doing epilepsy or Parkinson's disease or anything. And then I was randomly allocated. I was working where I work now in London and I was randomly allocated to a Huntington's disease, uh, sorry, to a general neurology clinic with Sarah Tabrizi, Professor Tabrizi, um, who also um, runs the Huntington's disease service. And she said, Um, I know you're at that stage of your career where you have to kind of decide what to do uh, and what what direction to go in. Why don't you come to a Huntington's disease clinic and see what you think? Um, So I I went along expecting it to be, you know, awful and depressing and miserable. And and 
you know, it certainly was a, a clinic full of people who were facing challenges. And but what I saw was completely the opposite of what I expected, because it was really a, the, 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 the first clinic that I'd been to where there was such an atmosphere of positivity and hope and such an atmosphere of collaboration and, and working together between the professionals, so-called professionals and the patients and families. And they would come in and tell these really um, moving sad stories about how their whole family had been affected by this disease and the professionals would listen and say we hear you and we can't take these problems away from you but we are going to walk alongside you for as long as you need us to and really it was the first time that those families had been told that because previously there hadn't been HD clinics until a couple of years earlier and they've been looked after by you know general neurologists and so on and I just thought um that's, uh, I don't, I didn't have words for it at the time, but I recognized that that's what I needed to do in my life was to find something that I could, that I could fully commit myself to and say to a group of people, you know, how can I help? And, and how can I walk alongside you? And that's how I got into HD. And as soon as you get into HD, you meet people uh, professionally who are also from HD families and so early on I met people like Nancy and Alice Wexler um, and I met Jeff Carroll and you know um, there are lots of people who are working directly on HD as their day job who are also from HD families and how can you then not sort of remain even more committed to a field once you're also your work is also trying to you know help your friends and their families um, so that's my answer. <laughs> Great answer. And we're very lucky to have you and Dr. Jeff Carroll, um, who, when you guys are together, you're absolutely hilarious. Um, yeah, he's okay. And <laughs> he's the good looking one. I'm the funny one. Well, and it's funny because anytime I went to a um, HDSA convention, we always, I remember, we were always looking for, for your session because um, you were going to break it down and it was going to be so entertaining and um, I would record them. And so I just appreciate that so much. It's a pleasure. And you know, that's the biggest thing I think that we do is, and we still do it now. We, we, we do these sessions. We're doing them regularly now where we, um, it's just ask us anything. Cause like if we can help people just by listening to their questions and doing what we can to answer them, you know, I, and I recognize that that has a long reach. And this is a time when people have a ton of questions, more than ever, probably. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure that because of your involvement in the HD research um, with the um, Roche trial and being that being halted, you grieved alongside all of us in the HD community. Um, what are your thoughts on what happened with that trial? grieve is exactly the right word Lauren it was really um it was I got a, a text message saying from the rush team saying you need to look at the website because we've had to put up a press release so I found out that exactly the same time as everyone else via the press release and you know there are sort of rules about international you know, monetary trading that that mean that as soon as this kind of information comes to light, they have to make that kind of announcement. And that's why everyone finds out in the same way. But it was such a uh, punch to the guts. Honestly, I felt like my insides had been scooped out when I read that. And it's, um, 
it's still hard now to think about that you know that the way it happened and what happened and what it means so personally i've been involved with rush since i think 2013 well actually long before rush it was ionis in fact they were isis then and then they changed the name to ionis and we need to go into the details of why but then you know and the rush team were involved from early and i gave the first dose of that drug in 2015 and um because it was it was the best uh, candidate drug that we had. And then in 2017, I was there proudly announcing that the drug had done on a molecular level what it was supposed to do, which was it reduced the production of the Huntington protein, which is the cause of HD. And the bigger the dose of drug, the bigger the reduction in protein. So it was kind of, it was unquestionably, you know, huge. And we had every right to expect that that it would um, slow the progression of Huntington's disease in that trial and that that expectation was perfectly reasonable there was there wasn't anything um overhyped I don't think about the about joining those dots between lowering the production of the protein and expecting the disease to be to be slowed information is trickling in about what happened and we had some information from previous phases of the program that carried on and it seems to me that the basic issue is that the dose that was chosen, 120 milligrams, was too high. Um, and in all of the patients who received active treatment, they all got one dose of 120 milligrams on day one and one dose of 120 milligrams on day 29. And then they were randomized to the two-week or the four-week, sorry, the, the eight-week or the 16-week treatment arm. So that's two-monthly or four-monthly. And... Um, but everyone got those two big doses up front. And I think in retrospect, it was probably too much for the brains of people with HD to cope with. And I think that the drug had some direct effect on um, sort of irritating neurons that were already struggling. And in reaction to that, an inflammatory response took place. And we see the evidence of that in the spinal fluid from some of the earlier stages the, the the white blood cells went up in some patients and the protein level went up in some patients and those are those are generally interpreted by neurologists as signs of inflammation and this other thing that happened was that the, this protein called neurofilament went up um, and that when that happens generally speaking if it goes up it's a sign that neurons have been are unhappy or have been damaged in some way and by neurons i mean you know brain cells and but the weird thing about that was that in the previous stages of the trial, initially the neurofilament went up and then on its own, the neurofilament came down. So there was a suggestion of a, of a sort of phase that people went through where the drug was maybe causing some irritation and some inflammation. And then if you carried on treating, it seemed like that was that was fading away. And, and that was interpreted as a reassuring sign. And I don't know whether it is, in retrospect, whether it will turn out that, 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 that the neurofilament falling on its own was a good thing or a kind of a neutral thing, like the end of something bad happening. But basically, I, I think that the analogy I use is that it was a little bit like you could be the, you could be, you know, Usain Bolt, you could be the fastest sprinter in the world. But if, if when the starting gun goes off, you run backwards, then even if you turn around and start running in the right direction, you're never going to win the race. And, and so basically, the way we talk about therapeutic window. So imagine you want to kind of fire yourself from a cannon through a window in the side of a castle. Okay. 
if you go too low, you'll hit the wall. If you go too high, you hit the wall. You've got to go through the window. And that's this is the same with drugs. If you go too low, you don't do any good failure. If you go too high, the drug causes harm. You hit the wall failure. You've got to go through the window. And and I think we were above the therapeutic window. The, for me, though, the, you know, this principle is sound. Lowering the production of the protein is still the best way to address Huntington's disease. And it's still, nothing's changed about what was discovered in 1993. The gene is a recipe for the protein. The protein is the cause of Huntington's disease. And we know, whatever else we learned from the Rush program, we know that we can lower the production of that protein using a drug. And actually, we can probably do it using different drugs. So what we need to do is figure out how to aim our cannon so that we go through the therapeutic window first time rather than going above or below. And so I think the trials that are coming up will learn a lot from the Roche program, not only in terms of not, not, kind of not, not going too fast, not rushing to get to the definitive trial. Let's take our time to find the right dose. And maybe we need different doses for different people. Maybe if you're seven foot tall, you can tolerate 120 milligrams. But if you're five foot six like me, you need 60 milligrams. That's what we need to discover in the early stages of the programs. And we can use this neurofilament protein, among other things, to help figure out whether the cannon's pointing in the right direction. So that when we get our one shot with our big phase three trial, we're more likely to hit the window. So I, I, guess, I guess in a nutshell, that's where I think we are. We, the dose is a bit too high. And, and the, the limited evidence that we have so far from the trial and the evidence, all of the data is still being processed. Nothing's being held back that's fully understood. Um, it's all like the, the rush have had this huge job landed on them of, of analyzing all the data from the trial a year earlier than they expected to. Um, and that's a mammoth job. And of course, they want to do it right. If the right thing is to kill the drug, then that's what will happen. If the right thing is to uh, retest the drug in a cautious way in a sub in a different group of people, maybe earlier in the disease or at a lower dose, then that's what they'll do. We just have to make sure that all of the work that all of the patients and researchers and families and everyone put in, even though the result wasn't what we wanted, we have to make sure that we learn everything we possibly can from that so that the next trial of this drug or some other drug has a better chance of succeeding. I'm well, still optimistic. I, right. And I, I think what you just said is, is very important because um, I think in the HD community, um, and I'm talking personally and, you know, just what I've heard, when you're grieving, sometimes it's like, well, what's the point, you know, and it, you lose that motivation to participate and um, to hear that we still need to be optimistic. We need to use these, um, not even failures, but these results setbacks. and, yes, these setbacks. Um, to move forward with other clinical trials, um, right. and we can we can do that. It's not like we we have to start over from the beginning. Um, so no, I, that exactly. is how it felt when you know yeah. we didn't have any oh, information. Uh, exactly. And you know the other thing is this was, this all happened in March, right? In the middle of the worst pandemic that yeah. any of us have ever lived through. And that normally the HD community, we get together we, in our local meetings, our national meetings, our big international meetings, and we'd all, you know, we're a very, we're a community that hugs each other, right? We'd all have a big hug and we'd all kind of scream or cry or swear or, you know, 
do yoga or whatever. <laughs> but we generally do these things together. And it's been so cruel that we've all been having to go through this grieving process. Well, there's also so much else to grieve about in the world. And we've had to do it um, in isolation from each other and in a way that none of us is used to. It, it's been so cruel. And, all, and you're absolutely right. The, it's, it's perfectly normal to, to lose hope or to be angry or to disconnect from the whole thing. And, you know, we have to let those we have to let those feelings run their course because they're perfectly valid. I've been through them all. Despair, anger. Uh, and, you know, it's this is and people who know me know I'm a very kind of upbeat, uh, pathologically cheerful kind of person. It's been difficult for me to, to get back on the horse this time. But actually what's done it is that, you know, I've been able to start seeing some of my patients, many of my patients face to face in clinic, thanks to uh, the you know, coronavirus in situation in the UK improving and, and, and seeing people in person has really um, reminded me of what it is we're doing and how we, ca we cannot uh, afford to waste a single second in pressing ahead with this mission. Absolutely. Um, absolutely, we can't waste a single second. So let's talk about <clears throat> HD clarity. Um, which is why you're on here anyway, but um, I just had to ask the other question too. So what is HD Clarity? HD Clarity is the biggest uh, collection, well, it's the biggest study that collects cerebrospinal fluid, spinal fluid um, in Huntington's disease. Um, why do we do that? Well, so the CSF is a fluid that uh, is produced inside the brain and it kind of surrounds the brain and supports the brain. Your brain basically floats like a big fish in a tank, which is your skull. And instead of water, the, the, the fluid is cerebrospinal fluid. And so a lot of this, if we take a blood test, it doesn't really give us a great idea of what's happening in the brain because most of what ends up in blood is coming from your body, like your liver and stuff. Um, I know there are other organs, but I'm mostly interested in what's above the neck. Um, so uh, the cerebrospinal fluid, on the other hand, contains chemicals that come from the brain. And so if we look at the chemical composition of the CSF, uh, it gives us a much better idea of what's actually happening chemically and biologically inside the brain. And my research has long been interested in what are called biomarkers, um, which is basically tests that we can perform, things that we can measure, that give us an idea of what's happening to a disease. And obviously in my case, Huntington's disease. So neurofilament is one that we talked about. Neurofilament is a protein that's released when brain cells, neurons are damaged. And my team was among the first to study neurofilament in HD and to show that as the disease progresses, the neurofilament level rises because more of the protein that should be inside the neurons is being released from the neurons when they're damaged. Um, mutant Huntington is another biomarker. Um, and this is the protein itself. And, we, and thanks to hard work from many people, in 2015, we, we, we first became able to measure the concentration of mutant Huntington in CSF. And that's been instrumental to the whole kind of Huntington lowering project. So HD Clarity, um, it basically sprang up because of how difficult it had been up until that point to collect uh, enough spinal fluid, enough CSF to actually address and discover new biomarkers and then test whether the biomarkers that had been reported were actually good biomarkers or not, and then to use that information to run new clinical trials. So um, the short answer is it's a, it's a CSF collection study 
at um, many different clinical sites in many different countries uh, that's been running for four years now. And from um, almost any, almost anyone uh, from, HD, from the HD uh, families is uh, welcome to take part. Um, we are interested in collecting CSF from control participants, pre-manifest people, people with so-called manifest HD, so across the HD spectrum. Um, and uh, it involves a screening visit and a sampling visit. Um, and then um, you'd be invited, people are invited to come back uh, around a year later and again, um, so that we can see how the, uh, see how things change over time. And, and so this would be classified under an observational study, um, which is, is different from a clinical trial. And can you kind of go into that, how studies are different from trials? Yeah, exactly. So HD Clarity is an observational study. Uh, Enroll HD is another good example of an observational study. So these are basically studies that exist to help us to understand the disease um, and, you know, to collect data and information and to study the biology of Huntington's disease. And, to, and, and that information helps us to develop drugs. But there are no experimental drugs given in observational studies. A clinical trial um, is is the, the sort of common name for what the trial people call an interventional study, which is a study where a new intervention or usually a therapy is, is being tested. So uh, a pill or an injection to the spine, or in some cases, even a gene therapy involving brain surgery, those would be interventional studies. And the, the, the slightly confusing thing about things like HD Clarity is it, you know, the fluid is collected by a spinal tap or lumbar puncture, which is a needle in the spine. Sounds awful. It's not as bad as it sounds. A needle in the spine through which the fluid is collected, which sounds like an intervention, right? That's, it's not a normal Tuesday morning. That's, that's definitely, uh, that sounds invasive and, in, and interventional, but it's not classified as an intervention because you're not giving a therapy. You're not giving a, an experimental treatment. And, um, well, and normally, so I was thinking about this question, that it's normally easier to participate in studies than it is for a um, clinical trial because you don't have as many, what is it, limiting guidelines, right? Right. So you don't have to exactly. qualify for, for a certain amount of things. Every study, whether it's an observational study or a, an, a drug trial, interventional trial, every study has what's called inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. So inclusion criteria might be something like you have to be over 18, um, you have to have had a positive genetic test for the uh, for HD, and exclusion criteria might be if you're on this particular drug, you can't take part. Uh, or if you've had, if you've been in some other drug trial in the past year, you can't take part. So, and you only you only get into the study if you meet both sets of criteria. The but because you're because you're usually giving experimental drug in the in the drug trials, those those usually will have much tighter criteria. So, for instance, you might have to go through much more rigorous things like ECG, sorry, EKG testing for my. Uh, <laughs> friends west of the Atlantic, EKG testing. Um, sometimes you have to, you know, pass through brain scans. There may, you know, there may be long lists of medications you can't be taking in order to be in a drug trial. Um, and spaces are usually much more limited. So for instance, in, in the, um, in the uh, Huntington lowering rush program, 
uh, in the final pro, uh, final phase three trial, we only had four spaces available because of how much how much resources it takes to um, to enroll a person in a drug trial. Whereas our capacity for observational studies like enroll HD or HD clarity is basically open ended, because in those studies they're usually much quicker, much easier. Um, and once someone's been been assessed as a one off or you know for for a short period, then there'd be a long gap before they're asked to come back. So there's, it's, it, the, the capacity is much bigger. And HD Clarity is, is already the biggest collection of CSF we've ever done in Huntington's disease. We have 686 CSF samples in the freezers, um, but we are um, we're just going through a process now to raise the recruitment target to 2,500 people. So. Um, and we know that those numbers are the kind of numbers that will be necessary to really get the quality. We call it signal to noise ratio, enough signal um, over the background of noise that comes from variability between people to get a really clear idea of what, what are going to be the best biomarkers and, and how to use them to run trials earlier and earlier to prevent HD eventually. Which is absolutely what we want. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> So tell us why it's important for people to participate in studies like this. And to a point, it could be even more important sometimes than even a clinical trial to participate in observational studies like this. Exactly. You know, I think the, the, the observational studies are really the scaffolding um, behind which the clinical trials and the drug programs get built. Um, the, for instance, the 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 fact that we now have around a dozen Huntington lowering drug trials expected to start in the next couple of years is because for you know 25 years people studied the biology of Huntington's disease and yeah a lot of that happened in you know mice and rats and pigs and stuff but none of those animals are HD patients and the the real understanding the full understanding of Huntington's disease relies on studying patients and, and, and patients and family members offering themselves and their time to help us understand the biology of HD and to develop measurements and uh, um, tests and, you know, outcome measures and biological tools that we can use to actually then develop the drugs and, and, understand the progression of HD in a way that lets us run the trials. And so, you know, the Huntington protein was discovered shortly after the gene in 1993. Um, and it was found on, it was first seen in the brains of HD patients who had died previously and the brains had been donated. And that's an observational study. You donate your brain, the brain is looked at, you end, we understand HD better. That's an observational study. And those are crucial insights that gave us, you know, science that we we use even now but that protein couldn't be measured we couldn't measure how much of that protein was in the nervous system of a living human being until 2015 and that happened because of a ton of you know technological developments that took place but the mainstay of that discovery was that basically a bunch of patients and controls decided to agree to donate their spinal fluid to give us big volumes of CSF that we could then put through these new measurement platforms that have been developed. And uh, we had a big eureka moment in 2014 where we basically uh, uh, discovered that, that it had worked. 
And it was only a year after that that the first dose of the Huntington-lowering drug was given. So I don't know if you guys know the Wallace and Gromit movies. Mm-hmm. Um, right, okay. So that, that there's this famous scene where the, they're, they're like on a model railway track and the dog Gromit, and Gromit's the dog, is on the front of the train laying the track in front of him desperately at the speed that the train is moving. And that's how, that's how it went. And that's how it still is with all HD research. The train's moving, which is great. But we have to make sure that the track in front of the train continues to be laid. So we have to keep in improving our understanding of HD. And for me now, the big mission is, well, we've always said the ultimate aim is to prevent HD, right? We need... We, we, we want to get into a situation where we can do a genetic test and sorry, the results positive, but good news. We've got a drug that will prevent or delay onset. The traditional way to think about how we get there is that we have to develop drugs in manifest HD. In other words, people who have symptoms and signs of HD. And um, if those drugs work there, we can combine that with biomarker information. In other words, this drug worked in early HD and it made the protein go down and it made the neurofilament level go down. And we think that's a good picture. That's a good package that we can then go to the regulatory agencies like the FDA and say, please, can we try this as a preventative package now? We won't be able to necessarily track clinical progression because these people are physically well. But we think we can use the biomarkers, the protein and the uh, neurofilament and the brain scans maybe to show that the drug is doing the same thing and on that basis get it licensed. And that, that's, that's what we've always been told by the regulators who govern these things, that that's what we need to do. And that's not just stuff that kind of is plucked out of thin air. It's because every time someone's tried to kind of shoot for the moon and go for a preventative therapy in the past, something's gone wrong. Like in, in, the, in the early 90s, there was a lot of pressure to accelerate the development of HIV therapeutics. And a lot of people sort of campaigned for, you know, the right to take drugs that hadn't been fully tested for, for, for preventive purposes. And it kind of ended really messily because they, the doses were wrong and the drugs turned out to be toxic and it was all a bit of a mess. So it's the right thing to sort of want to do, but we do have to get there in a way that's kind of stepwise and scientific. And but the, the biomarker angle is one that is slowly moving. The, the needle is moving slowly on the dial. And then, you know, you, some listeners may have heard of this drug, aducanumab, which is an Alzheimer's disease drug. And there was a lot of controversy because this drug hadn't really been shown to affect the clinical progression of Alzheimer's disease. But it did some things to the brain scans that the Alzheimer's folks used that looked good. And on that basis, the drug is now licensed for treatment of Alzheimer's disease on, in the hope that it will be able to be given to people sufficiently early that the drug will in the real world prove its worth. It's a big risk and a lot of people don't think it's a great idea, but actually it might end up working really well for us in HD because we can identify all of, all of our people in advance reliably with the genetic test who are destined to get HD later. Um, and, and actually, so a biomarker strategy that basically looks at a the drug is lowering Huntington and b it's doing the right things to the brain scans and the neurofilament level and c it's not doing any harm. You know now we have the expect we know what happens when neurofilament goes up from the rush trial and that's bad. So if a drug doesn't make neurofilament go up, if it makes it go down, well maybe that's enough at least to to give to let the FDA and others um, uh, give us uh, what's you know this kind of accelerated licensing conditional approval the drug still has to prove itself in the real world 
but it is a potential way that we can get drugs earlier into into people who don't have you know, manifest HD yet. Um, but the biomarkers have to be really, really solidly proven before we can do that. And that's why it's so important now to for for people with so-called pre-manifest HD. And I know that these terms are kind of a bit old-fashioned, the concept of pre-manifest versus manifest, call it what you like. People who are um, who are well but have the HD mutation, or maybe they have noticed some changes in their thinking and or um, behaviors or psychiatric um, state, but they don't have the the more sort of obvious physical signs of HD. Um, you know, like I say, the needle's already moving. We've heard an announcement from PTC Therapeutics that their strategy is to go um, at least very early in HD, much earlier than the Rush program, and I think that would probably include pre-HD patients. Um, but it's really important that we keep laying that track in front of the moving train because when it comes to the crunch and actually getting anything licensed, the FDA is very strict about having enough data from enough participants, and that's really the point of HD Clarity. We've got to get really solid data from thousands of participants about what these biomarkers mean in terms of the biology of HD. Well, and it's it's really important to um, for those of us who are pre-manifest, um, <clears throat> we can't participate right now in any clinical trials. Um, we're told, you know, we don't qualify, and that's fine. But that also means that we need to turn to things like HD Clarity. So I know for me when I participate in stuff, it makes me feel a million times better. I feel like I am helping and I'm moving that needle. So um, those of us who are pre-manifest should really, really uh, get involved in these studies um, in order to get to the point that we need, like you said, for the clinical trials um, and not think that just because we were turned down for a clinical trial, there's nothing that we can do. So um, I'm, I'm and very it, you know, it's excited always, about HD Clarity. I really am. Right. And it's always been the way in HD that each generation kind of pays it forwards, you know, and not necessarily generations. We Sometimes people pay it forwards for themselves. So there were people that were involved very early in my research when they were completely fine, who helped, you know, with blood samples and brain scans and CSF samples. And then some of those were the people that ended up being eligible for the treatment trials, the drug trials, when those came on board. But if they hadn't been part of that mass movement to understand HD and to generate the biomarkers, then those trials wouldn't have happened. So we have to, you know, we just have to keep paying it forwards and for other people and for ourselves. Yeah. And that's so how we get there. How do we, how do people um, find information and get involved with HD Clarity? So the good thing about HD Clarity is it's built on the Enroll HD platform. So an Enroll HD is much, much more familiar to many people than an HD Clarity. So if you're, if you're not part of Enroll HD or if the place where you're seen is not an Enroll HD site, then by, the, by definition, that means it won't be an HD Clarity site. Um, but if you are at an Enroll HD site, some of those have HD Clarity and some of them don't. But we're working on getting HD Clarity up and running at as many Enroll HD sites as we can. So um, the easiest way to find out is to go to hdclarity.net, which is the HD Clarity website. If your site's not listed there, then you may be able to find a site which is, and it is possible to um, 
have HD Clarity done at a site which is not your primary Enroll HD site, because as long as the other, as long as both sites have Enroll HD, you can actually transfer your data across your Enroll data across the other site for the purpose of an HD Clarity assessment. If you're an Enroll site but not a Clarity site, then by all means do ask the site staff, the coordinators at the site, whether they're planning to become an HD Clarity site or whether that's something that that they would consider. Um, where they're up to with that process. Um, we are we have five sites in the US at the moment, but 30 sites at, in setup in the US. So um, obviously, you know, the pandemic has had a big impact on the setting up of new sites. Um, but we're really emerging from that um, all guns blazing with the view to getting new sites set up um, and getting enrollment um, back up to speed. So um, basically, yeah, check out the website um, and speak to the site staff. Do you have any final thoughts for the HD community before I let you go today? Oh, well, I love you all very much. You know, this is my uh, my family. <laughs> um, I've been extremely honored to have been welcomed into this global um, family. And, um, you know, the, the, the work that I've done and the time that I've spent uh, in the company of HD community members has given my life meaning that it would not have had uh, for the past 16 years. And families go through tough times together and that's what's happening now. And, uh, you know, we, we just all need to be there for each other and do what we can to help each other. Things are getting better, broadly speaking. Even if things seem tough now where you are, overall, things are getting better. And the future is really bright for new treatments to develop HD. And I'm not just talking, you know, everyone hates it when a scientist says about five years. There's a, hunt, there's a pill to lower Huntington protein, uh, Branaplan. Actually, it's not a pill, it's a syrup. <laughs> anyway, you, you put it in your mouth and swallow it. And um, that trial's going to start dosing this year, 2021. Hopefully early next year, we'll see at least one other pill that lowers Huntington, among other trials of new treatments. So it, it's all still happening. There have been setbacks, but, um, you know, when have we not had setbacks? Let's be honest. Um, we are still closer than we'll ever be, than we've ever been. Science is cumulative. And, um, you know, if we stick together, we'll be able to get together in person soon and get back up to speed. and. Um, we can do this together. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about HD Clarity. I'm really excited about it. Um, I really do want to encourage people to get involved with HD Clarity. Um, if you're afraid about the whole lumbar puncture part of it, um, you should really reach out to Seth Rotberg. Um, he actually uh, did a whole thing on going through a lumbar puncture. Dr. Wilde has done it too. Um, <laughs> which if you don't follow him on Twitter, you absolutely should. Uh, he's hilarious and I love <laughs> the updates on there. So, um, but you can always go and look for what a lumbar puncture is and um, see that it's really not that bad. Um, I, know, I know it seems scary. Like had I not done research on it, I probably would be more scared of it, but um, I definitely want to encourage people to get involved, especially if you don't qualify for a clinical trial right now. Um, we still need 
to move forward. And the only way we can move forward is if we are participating in research. There's just absolutely no way to even get close to a treatment or even a cure without us participating in, in things like this. So um, I just think it's so important that we don't lose that motivation and that drive to, um, to move things forward, that we don't let one setback um, hold us back from, from doing what we need to, to, to move forward and move that needle and move things faster than even now. So um, if you've got any questions about HD Clarity, if you've got questions about um, clinical trials, observational studies, please reach out. I'm happy to talk to you about that stuff. I've participated in both. Um, so, you know, I'm happy to talk about the, the pros and cons of it, um, scheduling conflicts, all of that, because I've been through it. Um, Remember that this weekend is the Help for HD virtual symposium. We have an amazing lineup of speakers and a lot of topics are gonna to be addressed. We've got cognitive changes in HD, psychiatric symptoms in HD, um, IVF with PGD and social security. Seth, BJ and I will be presenting on what we have been working on for the HD community. And the talk is called Flip the Script, Acting with Urgency. Um, we'll have updates from Teva, Sage, Azavan, Wave and Unicure. So that's all on Saturday for the Adult HD Day. And then on Sunday, the sessions are for our Juvenile Onset HD community. Um, and those speakers for that day include Shelby Lentz, Dr. Bonnie Hennig, HDO, um, and presentations about JHD Study Iowa and Change HD, and a lot more for, um, for that day. Uh, a lot of exciting things. So please make sure to tune into that. Registration is closed, but Help for HD always goes onto Facebook and puts a Facebook Live of their symposium and their hype days. So you can catch it all on there. Um, and then next week, um, I'm flying to Wisconsin to participate in a study called Prevent HD. So our show next week will be done from there and I'll be sharing the whole process with you guys. Um, you know, from beginning to end and um, photos and videos and things like that. So make sure that you tune in next Thursday to hear more about Prevent HD and how you can get involved um, with that study as well. And until next time, take care and sending you all lots of love. Thank you again, Dr. Wild. Thank you, Lauren. Good to go. Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.helpforhd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications.